you know, if we want to understand anything about Jesus' life, the reason he did what he did and he said what he said, then we have to put the cross at center stage. Otherwise, Jesus' death would just be another senseless tragedy, another do-gooder crushed by the system. Without an understanding of the cross, Jesus' resurrection would be an impressive magic trick, but would really have changed nothing. And worst of all, without the cross, we would still be separated from God. We'd still be without forgiveness. Our sin would be heavy on our shoulders. So Holy Week is coming, where we remember Christ's crucifixion, kind of bracketed on one side by his trial, his arrest and trial, on the other side by the glories of his resurrection. But from the earliest centuries, the Christian church thought it was a good idea to set aside the weeks leading up to Holy Week as a time to, for special contemplation, to more deeply understand the meaning of the cross, so then we could more fully understand the power of the resurrection. A 40-day period that mirrors the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness in temptation prior to his beginning of his ministry. And the season we call Lent is this a shortened version of an old English word, lecten, which means the spring season. In other languages, it has other names. In German, it's called Fastenzeit, which means the time of fasting or abstinence. Regardless of what it's called, Christians everywhere have focused in on the cross. So we're going to look at the cross through the eyes of some eyewitnesses, people who were right there and saw it all go down. Some of these characters were bystanders who it was just, you know, wrong place, wrong time. Others were key players. Some of the names will be very, very familiar to you, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, but others you may not have even noticed. Yet each one brings a unique perspective to that important event. And I think what will challenge us is the way that these stories connect with our story. Their struggles to understand Jesus, to follow him, to uh, know what Jesus is all about. It's supposed to be like looking in a mirror, not a perfect match. And you don't want it to be because some of these stories will end very badly. But even their negative examples can actually draw us closer to Christ. So to begin with, we're going to start with a very obscure part of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Two verses that maybe you've never noticed or you've just mentally skipped over. So remember, it's Thursday night. Jesus and his disciples had been celebrating the Jewish Passover in secret at the home of one of their followers. Judas left during the meal to go do his dirty deed of betrayal. And after the meal, Jesus led the disciples down across the Kidron Valley into the shadows of the Garden of Gethsemane. And our story begins as Jesus has finished his time of prayer. Let me read from Mark chapter 11, or chapter 14. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him, and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus, arrested him, and the one who was standing near him drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus said, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled, that everyone deserted him and fled. Now listen to these two verses. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Amen. This is the word of God. 
One of the great novels of the American Civil War was a story called The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane. It used to be uh, required reading in our uh, educational system. I don't know if it is anymore. It tells the story of a young Union soldier named Henry Fleming who's facing his first real battle. He's untested, unsure of himself in combat. He doesn't know what it's going to be like. He's nervous about how he's going to respond when the fighting begins. He's not concerned about the larger issues of slavery or states' rights or anything like that. He's caught up in all these romantic notions of the glory of battle. His head is filled with fantasies of, of being the hero, of saving the day. He even longs to be wounded in battle so he can wear a bloodied bandage as his red badge of courage. But all those dreamy thoughts are shattered as soon as the bullets start to fly. The flash of cannons, the shock of seeing men around him ripped apart by bullets and shrapnel. He's buried in the smoke of rifle and cannon fire, so much so that the reality of death starts to smother him like a blanket. And then Stephen Crane writes this. A man near him who, stood, who up to this time had been working feverishly at his rifle suddenly stopped and ran with howls. A lad whose face had borne an expression of exalted courage, the majesty of he who dares give his life, was at an instant smitten abject. He blanched like one who has come to the edge of a cliff at midnight and is suddenly aware. Henry, too, threw down his gun and fled. He ran like a rabbit. For a moment in that great clamor, he was the proverbial chicken. He lost all direction of safety. Destruction threatened him from all points. He ran like a blind man. Two or three times he fell down. Once he knocked his shoulder so heavily against a tree that he went headlong. Death was about to thrust him between the shoulder blades. All his romantic notions of glory right out the window. He ran and ran until he couldn't run anymore. And after the battle, Henry is just overcome with shame, overcome with guilt for running away. He's sure everyone knows his secret. And he's haunted by the self-inflicted humiliation. This was his worst moment. This was his worst nightmare. How do you recover from such a moment of weakness? How do you recover from such deep feelings of shame and disappointment with yourself? The red badge of courage is really a study in cowardice. And that same story is told in these few verses that we heard from the Gospel of Mark. Bravado followed by panic, and then deep, deep shame. When we celebrate the Lord's table, as we're going to in a little while, we usually begin by quoting 1 Corinthians 11.23, where the Apostle Paul uh, uh, says, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew all of his disciples were going to run away. He even told them back in verse 18, he said in, in verse 27, he said, you will all fall away, for it is written, and then he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will all be scattered. They all wondered, is it I, Lord? They all looked around the room as Judas kind of slithered out the back door. Now we remember Judas as the betrayer. But they all betrayed Jesus to one degree or another. Of course, Peter, he's always the big mouth. In verse 49, he says, not me, even if all these other losers fall away. Jesus, I'll die for you. Well, the other disciples, they weren't going to take that sitting down. Verse 31 says, But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. So they were all kind of beating their chests and boasting of their bravery. But in the end, it wasn't just Peter who ran away. At the very moment of decision, verse 50 tells us, Everyone deserted him and fled. 
And then the gospel writer Mark adds these two obscure verses. A certain young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. A young man, not one of the disciples, someone following on the periphery, wrapped in basically a bed sheet. In the scramble, the mob uh, that came with Judas, the soldiers, they, they try to grab him up with the disciples, but he's kind of wiry and fast, pulls away, escapes their clutches, but he leaves this bed sheet behind as he runs naked into the darkness. I mean, what is up with that story? The scriptures don't tell us who it is. So we can't say for sure, but there's a consensus among biblical scholars that this mysterious streaker is actually Mark, John Mark, the author of this gospel. This is his way of saying, I was there, and it wasn't my finest moment. There are a lot of reasons to think it was Mark. For one thing, none of the other gospel writers include this small detail. Mark's gospel was the, was the only one who has it. Now, he wrote his gospel around 40 A.D. It was the first of the gospels. Matthew and Luke sort of came later, and they used Mark as kind of a template for their writings. Uh, each one, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, kind of added their own flavor, their own uh, kind of experiences to it. So Luke, he wrote this meticulous chronological history of the life of Jesus. Matthew told the story from more of a Jewish perspective and includes a lot more tie-ins to the Old Testament. John's Gospel is completely different. It's a theological telling of the life of Jesus. But Mark just told this simple, straightforward story. Just the facts. His prose is kind of like that of Ernest Hemingway. Short, very crisp sentences. No flowery language, no frills. Doesn't even bother with the birth stories about Jesus. No shepherds, no wise men. He just jumps right into the moment where Jesus comes out as God's Messiah. And he's the only one who records this display of panic. None of the other disciples even witnessed it because they'd already run away. What scholars speculate is that the home where Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples, it was the home of John Mark's family. There's a story that kind of confirms this in Acts chapter 12 that tells of how when uh, Paul got released from prison in the middle of the night, he says that he came, and I quote, to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark where they were gathered praying together. This house was a common gathering place for the disciples in Jerusalem. Peter and Mark are very closely connected. The early church fathers tell us that Mark sort of became Peter's right-hand man, became, and his gospel is filled with Peter's eyewitness stories. And it's interesting to note that Mark tells us this isn't just any young man. He says a certain young man. As if Mark didn't want to come right out and say who it was, but assumed you know, an alert reader was going to be able to pick up on the clue and realize who he was talking about. The Apostle John, he does the same thing in his gospel. He was not coming out and using his own name, but he would call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so even though we can't be 100% certain, it's reasonable to believe that this unnamed young man is Mark himself. So John Mark, young teenager, probably 13 14 years old, gets caught up in kind of the celebrity status of Jesus and their disciples as he enters their home. He's not a disciple. He's not part of the inner circle, but he's listening. He's fascinated. He's drawn to what's going on. And then eventually the men go on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, but his mom is not going to let him tag along. Somebody's got to help with the dishes. I mean, these guys left a big mess. So the speculation is that Judas first brought the Roman guard to where he left Jesus, which was John Mark's house. As they search the house, the commotion wakes him up. Just had time to wrap a bedsheet around himself. 
as Judas now leads the soldiers away by torchlight to go to the garden. And in his youthful enthusiasm, John Mark decides to follow. He goes into stealth mode, trails behind the soldiers to get to the garden, probably expecting that when confronted, Jesus would like call down angels and just smoke Judas and the cohort that was with him in a blinding flash. And that was something John Mark wanted to see. But that's not what happened. In the torchlight, there's fear and confusion like the mayhem of a battlefield. There are screams and blood and ear gets chopped off. There's panic and there's a mad scramble. In the commotion, Peter and the other disciples take off like scared rabbits. All their big talk right out the window. But somebody notices John Mark standing there with his mouth open. They try to grab him up. He eludes their grasp and skedaddles out into the darkness. But he leaves his bedsheet behind. Now here's the question. Why would you record that for posterity? Why would you record the moment of your deepest shame? Why would you record the moment of your cowardice? The moment when you deserted Jesus, why would you do that? Because Mark didn't have to include these two verses. He could have let it go. He could have covered it up because the other disciples, they never saw it. They didn't even know he was there. Matthew and Luke, John, they don't have this detail. If John Mark had just kept his mouth shut, nobody would have been the wiser. This is actually a dramatic testimony to the power of the cross. The power of the cross to change a person's life. John Mark is not afraid to show himself at his absolutely worst point. His worst moment, his moment of deepest shame. On display for the whole world to see for centuries now. Talk about vulnerability. You know, when I was a teenager exploring the possibility of the Christian faith, this is one of the things that convinced me that the Bible was true that the stories in the Bible most often reveal the failures and the flaws of the main characters. The Bible is so unique in this. Other ancient biographies, histories, they never did that. Never said anything negative about their leaders. Never showed their flaws at all. Never. Probably because these were powerful people, and if they wrote negatively about them, they might lose their heads. It would be like someone in North Korea writing a biography of Kim Jong-un. You're going to say only nice things about him, unless you want to disappear. Julius Caesar, in all of his prolific writings, never once said, man, I really messed up at this one. Not once. No one in the ancient world was vulnerable like that. No one except the authors of the Bible. And they tell us all the bad stuff about the folks who are supposed to be our heroes. Abraham and Noah and David and Solomon and the disciples, the Bible writers tell us the unvarnished truth about all of their worst moments and some of their worst moments were really bad. They tell the unvarnished truth because the bad stuff was never the end of the story. Same with Mark. That moment of weakness and cowardice, it didn't have to define the rest of his life. The cross gave him hope that a different chapter could be written. God wasn't finished with him yet. And isn't that great? That the moment of failure was not going to define the rest of his life. Now, I personally kind of believe that this event deeply scarred John Mark. Perhaps it revealed a pattern in his life, a, a character flaw, personality quirk. I mean, did he have a reputation for maybe being a quitter? Somebody who, when the, tough get, when the, when the going gets tough, he does get going, but in the opposite direction. You may remember later on in the book of Acts, which is the early history of the church, John Mark goes out on a missionary journey with the Apostle Paul and Paul's mentor, Barnabas. In Acts chapter 15, we're told that something happened, we don't know what, 
But John Mark bails out on the trip, goes back to mom with his tail between his legs. And Paul, from that point on, doesn't want him involved in anything, not willing to take him on any more journeys, thinks he's unreliable. Maybe he needed to grow up, maybe he wasn't mature enough yet, but Barnabas saw something in John Mark. He stuck with him, and Mark eventually became a solid leader in the church, the right-hand man to the apostle Peter. So Peter and the other disciples had their moment of restoration with Jesus immediately after the resurrection. I think John Mark's full restoration took a lot longer. It was not instantaneous. It took years, maybe years, but God did not give up on him. God was not finished with him yet. And that's encouraging to me. And I hope it's encouraging to you because sometimes we tend to think that all the problems that people have in the Bible, in the Christian life, that they should all be cured instantly, once and done, just a snap of the fingers. And I don't know, I just think life is so much more complicated than that. I wish that all problems could be instantly solved, never to return again. But I think there are particular things we all face that we will face repeatedly. Struggles that come back, temptations that reveal our weak spots, that point where we're vulnerable, where we're deeply wounded and deeply flawed. I've often felt like the Christian life isn't so much like climbing a mountain as it is going up a spiral staircase. You go over the same territory over and over again, but hopefully at a higher level. Same issues, same struggles, same sins. Maybe that's what was going on with John Mark. Maybe he had this tendency to give up when things got tough. A tendency to let fear or depression or discouragement just kind of sabotage his relationship with God. So as a grown man, Mark writes himself into the story for a purpose. Maybe he's a little bit like the movie director Alfred Hitchcock, who always made a brief cameo appearance in every one of his movies. But I think John Mark's message was different. His message was, I ran away. I made mistakes. I lack in so many areas. I am not perfect, and there are probably areas where you are like me. Areas where you're disappointed with yourself and what you did, where you're embarrassed and ashamed, where you let God down, where you let yourself down. Where, have you, where you have repeated sins and repeated struggles, repeated failures, things that make you feel ashamed that you don't want other people to know. Times in your life where you did not follow Jesus the way you thought you should, where you know you're a hypocrite. And John Mark would say, that's me, I have been there. So let's go back to that linen bed sheet for a moment. John Mark mentions it twice in two verses. Why be so specific with that? Why include that level of detail? Well, the sheet, it's like a symbol of John Mark's failure. It was physical evidence of his disgrace. It told the story of his shame, running away, naked, ashamed, completely exposed. And here's the thing. The next time a linen sheet is mentioned in the Gospels, it's when Jesus' body was wrapped in linen, and laid in the tomb after he had died on the cross for our sins. What a powerful connection. In utterly shameful circumstances, John Mark is stripped of the linen cloth he wore. And following an equally degrading crucifixion, a linen cloth becomes the shroud that covered the body of Jesus. To me, the linen sheet represents John Mark's shame. And it's buried with Jesus. That is the work of God's Messiah. He takes our shame and he gives us grace.
Isaiah 61. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. Psalm 34. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. He takes our shame and he gives us grace. Now here's the hope from this passage. It's for everyone who has failed in their relationship with Jesus Christ, who has ever tripped up, who has ever felt shame over their own actions, who carries a load of guilt for what they did or did not do. There is hope for all of us who follow Jesus imperfectly, who stumble, who trip, who are clumsy in our faith. The shame of our failures is exchanged for the brilliance of Jesus' glory, and we have hope because that's what the Lord did for us on the cross. Where we have failed, where we have run away, we've all done it at some point. We've all had some low spot. The place of greatest shame or self-disgust, you know what, Jesus can meet you there. He will meet you there because of the cross and the empty tomb. We don't have to be crippled by shame or handicapped by guilt. John Mark shows us this one glorious truth about the cross. God is the God of second chances. And Jesus takes our shame and gives us grace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that John Mark was willing to be so vulnerable with this moment of his biggest shame. And how it could be buried with you, Lord, and you come out and give to us grace, new life, forgiveness in the power of resurrection. So help us to live and believe that this week, to recognize that we're united with you in the power of your resurrection. And whatever repeated sins where we've struggled and failed, where we've been imperfect as Christians, Lord, we thank you that you meet us there. And the word that you give us is love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.